Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right, our um, call to worship this morning. I'd like you to all stand. As we have considered Psalm 51 this week, and Suzanne's going to talk about it even more, um, I've just pulled out a couple of verses that really, um, just really speak to me every time, and I'd just like us to read this together and consider it, and then we'll pray together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away. I'm sorry, I had the wrong version. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So let's just think on those words for a few seconds and then I'll close us in prayer. Oh God, would you create in us a clean heart? Would you renew a right spirit within us? God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? God, we do just want to rest in you together. These are hard, hard chapters that we have studied this week. Um, Suzanne has a hard task in front of her to bring it to us. Um, But God, we are so grateful for your mercies that are new every morning, for the way that you have washed us in the blood of your son and that you continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God, we just bring to you our whole heart, all of our sin, we lay it before you confident in your grace and mercy and in our salvation. So thank you for that this morning, Lord. Thank you for what you have taught us in our group time. And um, God, we're asking you to speak to us through your servant, Suzanne. Would you give her courage and wisdom and just ability to share what you have put on her heart. And God, would you teach us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand? We love you and thank you in Jesus name. Amen. All right. We are, I'm excited because Suzanne is with us this morning. And so I'm going to invite her up and turn the floor over to her. Okay. I think I'm live. Well, good morning. Um, It's really fun to see your shining masked faces this morning. Um, I miss smiles, um, um, but it's good to be here with you in person this time. And um, I'm really excited about this study. Um, God has really um, worked in me as I prepared for this. And um, I hope that um, you'll feel encouraged as we go through it. Um, So this week we studied 2 Samuel Um, chapters 11 through 14, and we witnessed the tragic fall of David. We've all heard this story in the past, analyzed and dissected as to what caused David to sin so horrendously. Sexual sin has such dramatic consequences in the lives of people, and David is no different as we see his family deeply affected by his choices. Um, Today, I'd like to delve into three areas um, Today And so the first one would be the anatomy of sin, secondly, the consequences of sin, and then thirdly, gospel-centered repentance, where we'll look specifically at Psalm 51. So if you want to have your Bibles open to that, it might be helpful. 
Um, David wrote Psalm 51 in response to this experience in his life. And it really gives us a picture of biblical repentance and how God's grace is sufficient and how amazing his heart is for his children. Um, There also is a handout just with the the verses that I'll be using um, just to reference to, um, so that might be helpful too. Now I'm just going to start with a story. Um, When our oldest child, Sarah, who actually turned 25 this week, was just six years old, we had an encounter with what happens when you play around with our state's 911 emergency system. We had taught our children um, what to do, and you know, if there was ever an emergency, how to call 911. We even had this cool little play phone that if you actually dialed the numbers, the operator would say, 911, what is your emergency? And so we would practice. But in this training, we stressed, you never play around with the 911 system, that this is a really important thing um, and that it's only for emergencies. But we all know children are curious, and Sarah was no exception. So one day she called 911, and then when the operator answered, she hung up very quickly. Um, thinking, I believe, that it, since she hung up, that there would be no repercussions. Well, if any of you are familiar with 911, if you ever hang up, they call back. And so this time I answered the phone, and um, the operator, 911 operator, uh, explained that there had been a call, and I was confused and not tracking with her. I said, No, 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 no one's called. There's no emergency. And she said, Yes, someone's called from this number. Um, and so we're going to have to send out a police officer to check things out. So I said, okay. So after I got off the phone, Brian and I called the kids together and asked, who called 911? Well, when Sarah's tears started to flow and she was very quiet, we knew that she was the culprit. So we explained to her that there would be a consequence for this because she disobeyed us. We had talked about this. And so when the police officer got there, that she was going to have to face him and tell him she was sorry and acknowledge that she did it and ask for forgiveness. Well, this seems like a heavy consequence for a six-year-old. But we also wanted Sarah to feel the sting of disobedience so that she would choose not to go down that path again in her life. You know, and the, the interesting thing about this story, the Lord gave me a glimmer that day about his heart. Because when the police officer knocked on the door, Sarah was hiding. And so Brian had to go find her. I think she was under her bed. And make her come downstairs. And as she came down those stairs, and her, she was just pouring with tears. And she was devastated. And she was scared. Um, I just had this glimmer of how God feels when we're disobedient. I wanted to swoop in. I wanted to protect her from this pain. I wanted to tell her, it's okay, I'll talk to the officer. But then I'm, I remembered what the word says in Hebrews twelve eleven. If you're a parent, you probably know this verse. It says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there'll be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. And I knew that as much as I love my daughter and wanted to shield her from pain, I knew that the Heavenly Father loves her and us infinitely more than that. Now, the end of this story is such a picture of God's lavish grace. The policeman, after Sarah acknowledged what she did and asked him him for forgiveness, he said, walk with me, Sarah. And he had her walk out to his car. And when he got to his car, he opened up his trunk and he, you know, had expressed her importance to obey her parents. Well, in the trunk, he had a teddy bear, which he gave to her and said, I forgive you. And I just thought it was such a token of generosity, just such a picture of God's lavish grace that he pours out on his children. 
Now, through David's story, we see a similar scenario. But sadly, David's consequences were much more far-reaching. And that's the truth about sin, and especially sexual sin. So let's first look at the anatomy of sin. The first sin in human history, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, is our inheritance through Adam. When we showed up here on planet Earth, we were spiritually dead in our sins, as we learned in Ephesians when we studied last spring, um, that you were dead in your transgressions. Now, Rebecca shared with us last week about the covenant that David had made with Jonathan, um, about that he would um, love and protect his family always, and he also um, promised Saul in the cave that he would never harm or kill out all of his descendants. And so we see David offering this kindness to Mephibosheth, um, Saul's grandson and Jonathan's son, by restoring the land that was the family's and most importantly, granting him a seat at the table for always. Um, and this is the David we've known up until now. We've studied um, the man after God's own heart, the man who honors covenants, the man who extends kindness, um, who fights injustice, and he honors what God honors. But yet in chapter 11, we see David fall. And we wonder, what happened? Why did David not show that same kindness and justice to Bathsheba, to Uriah? Why did, um, and a couple of things catch our eye when we first look at these chapters. Um, as the chapter begins, we see that David remained in Jerusalem. And I think we covered that in our study. Um, when normally the kings go out. Now, I've heard different thoughts on that choice as I've read commentaries and some referred to him being apathetic or disengaged, even lazy. There was even one interesting commentary that said it really wasn't abnormal at all, that he um, normally the scouts or commanders go out and then the king goes out later to join him. But whatever we think here, the reality is that David had time on his hands without a purpose to keep his mind on in the moment. This shows us the significance of being busy with a higher purpose. We can also see there can be a danger when we're doing really good. We're not having life struggles. Um, life is um, bl blessing us. Um, that we can forget to be dependent on God. David is experiencing in this time in his story a kingdom that's flourishing. There's wealth coming in. He's well regarded by his people. And they've been successful in battle. Um, the author of Proverbs, this one, um, gives us a warning in that. It says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Paul also says in 1, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, don't become comfortable with your blessings and fall prey to thinking you can stand on your own. Now, the next thing I've heard in many talks and sermons and books is that there seems to be some blame placed on Bathsheba. Um, even that she was seducing David by bathing on her roof. Well, in a sermon I listened to um, by Dr. Liam Goliger of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he explains that according to the culture and times of David, that there really wasn't full bathing done on roofs. There weren't swimming pools or hot tubs up there. But the reality would better be explained that she was possibly exercising this purification ritual, which might look like washing her hands in a bowl of water, but more than likely fully clothed. Um, 
So we somehow want to find some excuse for David's sin, don't we? We want to understand um, and maybe shift that blame to Bathsheba for flaunting herself. And I believe that if we take away some uh, mitigating circumstances to explain David's sin, um, we, we see what's actually going on here. And we see what God wants us to see. We see the anatomy of sin. Now, there are key action words in this chapter. We, when we look at this chapter, it says that David saw, David inquired, David sent for, and David took her. Dr. Gallagher even goes so far in his sermon to say that David acted like a real creep in this moment. We see that David is in control. His kingdom is flourishing, and he's doing what he wants to do. So we ask ourselves, how does unprovoked sin happen? Well, often it starts in the imagination. A great quote about the anatomy of sin comes from Reformed theologian Herman Bovink. And this is what he says. The mind entertains the idea of sin. The imagination beautifies it and then converts it into a fascinating ideal. Desire reaches out to it and the will goes ahead and does it. I think if we're to make Bathsheba the temptress, we miss the point that God has for us in this story. The point here is the power of sin and how God provides a way out when we are tempted with the idea of sin. We also see, ironically, back in 1 Samuel 8, when Samuel warned the Israelites about an earthly king. Do you remember he said an earthly king would be a taker? And here we see David do just this. He takes Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. In essence, in this moment, David's acting like Saul. But God is faithful, and we know that he'll always provide a way out of these moments when the power of sin is tempting us. In one commentary, the authors point out that in verse 3 through 5 of this chapter, when David inquires about Bathsheba after he sees her, that he says, um, one of the servants steps forward and says, is not this Bathsheba the, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It's as if this servant may see where David's headed. And God may have laid this on his heart to say this, to, to appeal to David's heart. He's pointing out that this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. It's not just a beautiful woman for the taking. It's an attempt to remind that sin hurts. It affects others. And God's rules are not meant to deny us, but they're there for our good and they give us life. Another significant point that, about sin that we see is that once we engage in sin, it almost always leads to more sin. Sin begets sin. We witness after Bathsheba is dismissed after her time with David, he sends her home. And then she sends word that she's pregnant. And now this power of sin that's been given way in David's life leads to more sin as he begins to plan how to hide his sin. And so we see David's plan. He calls Uriah home from battle. And when that doesn't work, he, he hatches this ruthless plan of sending Uriah to the front lines with the hopes that he'll be struck down. And sadly, he does die. So not only does sin lead to more sin, but it also appears as we allow sin in our lives that we become desensitized to sin. And we can engage in deeds that we would have never considered at the onset. David ultimately starts with seeing a beautiful woman, wanting her and taking her to, in the end, basically murdering the husband um, to cover his sin. Now, next, let's look um, the next point in these chapters, the consequences of sin. 
So in chapter 11, we saw this repeated action verb, as I mentioned, um, David doing all this action and summoning to get what he wants. Well, in chapter 12, there's a shift, and we see God is now doing the summoning as he um, summons Nathan, and he sends Nathan to David. Um, And Nathan addresses David as God has directed him to do, and we'll come back to the grace that he really extends um, from the Father in that confrontation of sin. But let's first look at the consequences um, because, that happen because of David's sin. So let's first look at what, David's, um, what God says about sin. In the books of Isaiah, Hebrews, and Psalms, Scripture tells us that God keeps no record of our sin. It even says that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. So although our sin is removed and forgotten by God as we seek the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, the consequences do not escape us. And David's no exception here. We see that as Nathan delivers the blow that because of his sinful relationship with Bathsheba, that God is going to raise up evil um, in his own home. And we see this later with Amnon and then later with his son Absalom. And then the ultimate news, the child that is conceived will die. And sadly, after the child is born, seven days later, he does die. And David exhibits a heart of repentance, though, in this moment as he accepts these consequences. We see that he's been lying on the ground for seven days and fasting and praying. But when he gets the news, he rises, he washes, he anoints himself, and um, most importantly, he worships the Lord. Um, His servants are astonished. They really weren't thinking he'd handle this well. But David tells them, why should I continue to fast I cannot bring back my son. So it demonstrates a heart full of accepting God's will and the consequences of disobedient choices. Now in chapter 13, we see another sinful violation as David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister Tamar, David's daughter. Some may argue that David's behavior of seeing a woman, wanting her and taking her, may have set a poor example for his sons. Amnon was David's firstborn, and he would be the next in line for the throne. Another consequence of David's sin could be the generational sin of violating a woman's dignity, the the selfish act of thinking only of oneself and putting your own wants and desires above another. We also notice in this family dysfunction time that David fails to discipline Amnon. We read in verse 21 that he's angry when he gets the news, but nothing is done. Could it be that David is feeling shame for his own sexual violation? That he becomes passive, failing to right a wrong as the king? We don't know what uh, motivated David to not take action, to not use his supreme power as king to exonerate Tamar, his daughter, and to punish Amnon. But we do know that his silence was wrong and that if there's any personal guilt that he was struggling with, um, he still had a responsibility as king to, to do his duties. Now, shame is often used by the enemy to immobilize God's people. Shame can be a consequence of sin that's not the the father's desire for us, but it's the work of the enemy. Satan is the father of lies, and um, scriptures tell us that he accuses the brethren in Revelation. You see, the deceiver knows that if he can convince you that your sins are too much, too awful and too big for God to take care of, he can deceive you into living your lives functioning from a core set of lies. Now, two weeks ago, our family watched a sermon um, from Red Rocks Church in Denver. Um, And if you like worship music, they have amazing worship music. 
but Pastor Sean Johnson was talking, and the sermon was titled Shame. Um, and I don't remember the whole title, but it's on shame. Um, and I found this really cool because as I've been studying these chapters, shame was something that the Lord was bringing up. And I'll share in a little bit just my own struggle with shame. But Pastor Sean um, was sharing how he had struggled with shame. He was raised in a home where his father had left him and his mother tried to leave him. And even as a pastor into his adult years, he struggled much with shame. And he shared the story of the prodigal son, how the Lord spoke to him through this story, which we're, we're familiar with because Amy just talked about this two weeks ago. Um, but the verse that spoke to him of the power of shame in his life was in Luke 15, 19, where the prodigal son says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The younger son was trapped in shame after squandering his father's inheritance and hurting his father from leaving. And he believed that he was no longer worthy as a person. He almost even starved to death before finally rising and going home to the father. Now, I can relate to shame that smothers a person. For many years, I lived in shame in my walk with the Lord because as a young person in high school and college, I made some poor choices, wrongly believing um, that the only way to fill the void in my life and the need for love was to seek the things of this world to fill me up. When I was 13 years old, my father died. And I think um, the pain of that was so heavy in my life. Um, and I, was, I wanted something to take away that pain and give me hope. And those choices left me feeling such shame. And when I became a believer at age 22, praise God for that, the most significant thing that stood out to me in the scriptures was this um, truth about forgiveness. And I understood, and I was so grateful that my sins were forgiven. But the enemy loves to remind us of our wrong choices. And as I became a wife, and then especially as a mother, trying to teach my children God's ways, the enemy loved to whisper, how can you be such a hypocrite? You lived sinfully. You can't be an example to them. But thanks be to God and wonderful um, people that he put in our lives, my life and Brian's life, that discipled us. We began to understand the freedom we have in Christ and apply that daily, moment by moment, as we walk with him. And that we've taught to our children, hopefully continue to point them there. And that's this truth, that our identity is not based in what we do or what we've done, but whose we are. You see, I may have done wrong like the prodigal son, but I am not wrong, and there is a difference. Our behavior doesn't determine our identity, but our identity is rooted in the position of Christ. I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. And I love what Pastor Sean said in his sermon as I listened to it. This just jumped off the page for me. It said, guilt says I did wrong. I need to run to the Father. Shame says, I am wrong. I need to hide from the Father. Shame will take your joy because it's rooted in the lies of the enemy. God says in Romans 8.1, one of my absolute favorite verses, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now as Amy has shared with us as we've studied the word together and done inductive Bible studies, that whenever we see a therefore in scripture, she encourages us to read what comes before that. So if we go back to Romans 7, we see that Paul is wrestling with the struggle of sin. He's asking why he does the very thing he doesn't want to do and the things he wants to do he doesn't do and that nothing good dwells in his flesh. He says that he delights in his inner being in the law of God 
And yet he sees in his members another law, waging war against the law of his mind and making him captive to the power of sin that dwells in his members or his flesh. He sounds so frustrated with this internal struggle with the power of sin that he exclaims, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers for himself and for all of us this simple response, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. He has paid the price, and through his victory over death in his resurrection, we too are set free from the prison of sin and death and shame. And therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're like me and you have struggled with shame or still struggle with shame, claim the truth that is yours. I think on your sheets there I've given you all these verses. Pastor Sean shared in his sermon this artillery to fight the shame game. And these are just scriptures. um, And I've added two at the end there that the Lord gave me in my own journey. But it's so important for us to commit God's word to our memory so that when the enemy lies, we can fight back with truth. Finally, let's look at what gospel-centered repentance looks like. Um, By God's sufficient grace... Um, That even though we don't deserve it, he gives it so freely, sweetly, gently, and timely. David hears the Lord, and he acknowledges his sin. In chapter 12, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, we can see that David's heart as he acknowledges his sin. And we can learn from this for our own lives how to address sin. In a commentary by Thomas and Greer that I read, they look at Psalm 51 And they break it down into four keys to gospel-centered repentance and confession. The question for us is not, do we sin, but what do we do after we sin? Well, the first key to gospel-centered repentance is understanding that that the mercy of God is our sole hope. In verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Repentance begins where blame-shifting, bargaining, and rationalization end. David isn't reminding God all these good things he's done. He certainly could. Um, He isn't trying to explain it away or blame it on someone like Bathsheba. He isn't even promising to do better in the future. He's starting where he needs to start, and that is on the foundation of God's grace and mercy. We also see the greatness of God as we reflect back on how God brought him to this place. Not by pointing his finger in his face in an accusatory fashion, but he uses Nathan to share this story about the rich man and the poor man to appeal to David's heart. God's desire is to teach us to be fully dependent on him, not catch us in our sin. Secondly, Gospel-centered repentance owns that the sin we commit or committed is deeply inherent in our flesh patterns, or some would say sin nature. David refers to this fact in verse 5 when he said he was brought forth in iniquity. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we showed up here on planet earth, we inherited the sin of Adam. How do we know this? Because no one had to teach us to be selfish. You can look at any group of toddlers or preschoolers and quickly learn the most common word used is mine and no. 
So the ways we learn based on our circumstances of life to get our needs met are called flesh patterns. It's inherent in each of our stories, um, what we've been through, what we've experienced in life, these patterns that we develop to operate independently and have control over our lives. When we become Christians, we surrender our lives to Christ and he saves us from our sins and his resurrected body gives us new life in him. Yet, as we all know, we still sin. We still sin because in those moments we choose to act independent of God and we fall back on these flesh patterns which seem to be who we are. But Christ's life in us gives us a new identity. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it tells us that we're new creations. The old is gone. Yet we don't appropriate this truth in our lives and we believe the lies that the enemy tells so well and we walk in the flesh. Now David recognizes the truth of sin in his being and he acknowledges it and he claims that only the Lord can wash him clean and create in him a clean heart and be with the filling of the spirit today you and I have the Holy Spirit deposited in us as we studied in Ephesians that this deposit of the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance Paul also tells the Ephesians as we studied how to live in this truth of our new life in Christ. And he says this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, thirdly, gospel-centered repentance is directed first towards God. David says in verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognizes that his sin offended his father, and that was most significant. It isn't to say what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah and essentially his family who witnessed these horrible deeds wasn't significant. But the best way to deal with sin in our lives isn't merely to suppress it, but to increase our delight in God so that we love him more than we love that sin. I love the quote that says, worship is the act of putting God first. Amy also talked to us about worship a few weeks ago in different practices, whether it be through song, whether it be through quiet times out in nature and being still before the Lord, or prayer postures, whatever your practice is, um, these are soul practices. And we read that also in the book, um, Good and Beautiful God, and things we need to, we, we need to practice these and, and really um, come to a place of worship. Now, finally, gospel-centered repentance cries out for the gospel. In verses 7, 9, and 10, we see the message of the gospel for our sin condition. David says, purge me with hyssop. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Blot out all my iniquities and create in me a clean heart, O God. David is expressing the human need for cleansing that we know is only found in Jesus Christ. David needed someone to blot out his guilt and wash him clean. And that someone we know for us is the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. I thought this quote sums it up nicely. The penalty for his sin and ours was death. But in the gospel, God takes the penalty of sin on himself, absorbing it into the cross. The cross is God's promise to us that there is no sin so heinous, no heart so wicked that he cannot cleanse it. 
And the resurrection is God's promise that there is no situation so dead that he cannot renew and restore it. I'd like to close today with a poem on grace. Um, This is New Morning Mercies devotional. If you don't have it, I highly recommend it. But on October 22nd, um, there was a poem on grace, and I just want to share it with you. Plenteous grace, it's what we're given. Grace that is deeper, fuller, richer, and greater than our sin. This grace does not suspend operations in the face of our disobedience. It will not turn its back in the face of our doubt. It will not stand idly by in the face of our hunger. No, this is rich grace, perseverant grace, tender grace, powerful grace. There really is nothing like it because it comes from the hand of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace. Um, As we study this, we see how abundant and lavish it is, God. I pray that every woman here would know and experience your grace in, in meaningful, personal ways in each of their stories. God, you are almighty and sovereign, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which teaches us and is our deposit guaranteeing our future. God, we just love you and thank you. And I thank you for each of these ladies here. In Jesus' name, amen.